0: Welcome to the Belonging Project Podcast. This is Fiorenza and I'm your host. The purpose of this podcast is to bring voices together to talk about belonging. Through inspiring real life conversations, we explore how belonging can show up in so many different ways, what it feels like to belong and the impact of truly belonging. Each episode will offer you inspiration and practical strategies to find your true voice in your life and as a leader. Let's dive in. Hi, welcome to the Belonging Project podcast. Today, I'm with Anna. Hi, Anna. Hello, Fiorenza.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course, I'm so delighted to have you. I've been really looking forward to our conversation since we connected a couple of months ago. And maybe we can start with a little bit about you in your own words, your journey, just anything that you'd like to to share about you so we know you better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And I've been really looking forward to this as well. Uh, So I am a licensed clinical psychologist and organization development consultant. And I started my career in clinical work, so primarily doing individual therapy with adults of a wide-ranging variety of clinical presentations, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, sort of the range. And I knew going into clinical work that what I was ultimately interested in doing professionally was working with organizations and leaders to help systems become as healthy and happy as possible to work in. And I it took sort of a circuitous route to get to where I am today, but it really all started at a previous job that I had held. I used to be in theater and got connected to a small company where I was working for a little while in my early 20s. And what I observed at that company was that the leadership really was influencing how comfortable people felt in their day-to-day jobs. Mm -hmm. And when the leadership of the company, when they weren't there, the company would interact really healthily together. People were excited to work with one another. The relationships were just really strong. And then when the leaders would come into into the office, the whole mood would change. It was a very small building that that, uh, everybody worked in. And when these leaders walked in, the entire mood shifted and people became more cautious around one another. They felt like they were being watched. And I just, I remember sort of working day to day and really thinking, this is really fascinating. What is happening here at the company that is influencing this dynamic to this degree? And that really got me interested in psychology more generally, but specifically working with organizations. So I kind of put together my whole clinical journey to work towards uh, being able to work with leaders and organizations. And psychological safety, of course, is uh, a huge component of what I do in my day-to-day work. And that's really what we were kind of seeing at that organization. So uh, that's sort of a broad overview, most recently, I, ha- I own my own company, Gibson Dynamics, and I do some consulting for a firm out here in Washington State. And I've worked with the National Center for Organization Development at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. So I've sort of been all all over the place and in different kinds of job settings. That's amazing. That's a,
0: such an amazing journey. Um, and I'm curious when your clients, organizations, when they come to you to to hire you, how often does psychological safety come into the conversation ahead of you
1: starting working for them? That's such a wonderful question. I would say in it eventually becomes a part of the discussion in 100% of the companies that, or leaders that I work with. We don't always address it explicitly, but psychological safety is always a factor in the work that i do there we're always sort of working on how interpersonal dynamics are playing out how comfortable people feel sharing themselves or sharing their ideas and oftentimes i'm usually brought into an organization because there's been some issue with a person in leadership And often that person in leadership has had an impact on the culture more broadly, and it's impacted how safe people feel or how comfortable they feel speaking up. So usually that's kind of where I'm brought in. And then what we discover is that there are a number of interpersonal dynamics at play that all sort of need to be addressed in slightly different or yeah, could be addressed in slightly different ways.
0: Got it. Got it. This may be a loaded question. What have been your biggest observations so far in your work?
1: Good question. I did say maybe a loaded one. No, it's a very good. It's a good question, and I'm trying to think of sort of the the key components that I've seen playing out in specifically around psychological safety. What I what I would say is I've been I have been surprised by the degree to which psychological safety is an issue. In any relational system of any kind, you know, and Amy Edmondson is the really founding pioneer in the psychological safety research world. And her research primarily has been within workplace settings and specifically within hospitals. That's really sort of what started um, started her research base off. But what I have, what I have observed over the last few years of my career, both working in workplace settings, but then also, you know, in my own family system, in my friendships, I I have been really surprised by the degree to which psychological safety really exists in any relational configuration and of course you know we usually think about it within the workplace and how leaders can create psychological safety within their teams Mm -hmm. but it really is something to be considered in any relationship dynamic where people are sort of rallied around a common goal or a common purpose Mm -hmm. so i've been thinking a lot lately especially about couples work and marriages and how really in a marriage to some degree, you're sort of a a mini organization, right? You're both sort of working on the same things together. You're trying to collaborate with one another. You're maybe, you know, parenting together. And there are a lot of shared common goals and purposes that you're sort of working around. So psychological safety is a factor in even dynamics that are as small as families. And really the principles apply regardless of where where you're looking.
0: Absolutely. And what you've mentioned there uh, made me think that um, I'm probably, or I tend to be more vocal in terms of expressing my needs or, you know, if I don't feel safe enough um, in relationships, uh, family, friends um, with my other half, then, yeah, just comparing to how I would express needs um, in, in a workplace setting, I think there's probably um a difference for me
1: there that's really interesting yeah I would be curious to hear how you kind of experience the differences
0: um I would say that um I feel that and and so there's we we are probably going to like the belief system and all that Mm -hmm. um but I think that my where my challenge comes from previous past experiences being an employee of different organizations is there's been, it, it, it feels to me that there have been so many generations of employees being in organizations where psychological safety wasn't permitted or just wasn't mm. a priority that mm. you have to, you have to kind of fight for it. You have to, you have to be brave enough to stand up for yourself and for others as well. And then, is, and then it's about how often do I have the courage? How often do I feel brave enough in a corporate setting? More past than present now because I, um, I, I, I work for myself. Um, does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Very yes. absolutely not articulated well. Well, no,
1: I you I think you articulated it beautifully, and I heard I heard two really important points in there. I heard, you know, this this histor this history piece, right? Where I have all of these stories that I've carried with me from past jobs, past experiences and relationships into the workplace. And some of that is informing how likely it's going to be for you to speak up, it sounds like. That's kind of one piece in there. And then the second piece I heard is how much bravery it takes to continue to step into those conversations. And I think what you highlighted is very consistent with what we see in the psychological safety research, that Depending on the experiences that I have had in my past, that's going to influence how much I choose to say at a company. And that might have a lot to do with my belief systems, my identities. If I have felt like I haven't been accepted for who I am in the past, I might be more afraid of speaking up in in a different setting just because of those past experiences and then the second piece about bravery, I think is such a beautiful point, because what we really see is that psychological safety is not about not taking risks. It's it's really the opposite. It's that I, it feels to me like it would be riskier not to speak up and not to bring myself. So really, when we talk about psychological safety, bravery and risk-taking is really built into the idea itself. So- I think you art- articulated that beautifully, and I think you hit on two of the the most important components of what psychological safety is and how it kind of plays out. Mm. And it
0: is, you know, um, very much what you said for me. My first work experience um, was at a very... So my background is in investment banking, and so it was a very prestigious bank. You're fresh of, um you're fresh out of university, you have your dreams and you just kind of want to, um, do well and perform and all that. Um, and I had this boss and she traumatized me. (laughs) Um, like, yeah, just, um, probably not, not the female boss that as someone identifying as a female, you would hope to have right um forget the sisterhood like all that no like mm. not existing and it took me um took me a while when I was then in my next team and next job um to to get over it and to trust mm-hmm. actually that my leader and the, the 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 yeah my leader was actually someone who was lo- looking looking out for me right looking after me and not kind of being like in, in a new in a warm mm-hmm. mode that's how it felt um yeah so definitely the the past experiences are have so much power um they 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 shape us yeah for sure especially maybe when it's so early on it can take mm-hmm. a little bit longer to get over it because you're so You're junior, so maybe you don't have the courage, the bravery to speak up um, Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. you would if you were tenure in a a role or something.
1: I really appreciate that story and the vulnerability in it. I think it's so true. And to your point about, you know, it, almost being more impactful the earlier we are in our careers. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, even going back as far as being a kid, you know, these are things that we learn on the playground. We learn whether it's safe to be ourselves. We learn whether it's safe to speak our minds. We learn whether or not we need to fit in with kids by, you know, changing our behaviors, right? And so part of what you're talking about is what kind of, uh, what kind of an environment allows people to really show up as themselves and to not feel afraid that just because I'm junior, that that means that I, I have to be something I'm not, or it's not going to be okay. It sounds like the experience you had with your boss was, was traumatizing in that way, (laughs) you know, that like kind of staying in that state of fear also prohibits you from really being able to grow and develop from junior to senior. And I think what a lot of leaders don't recognize is that they're sort of, they're shortchanging their own team's performance by creating cultures of fear because people just cannot access the you know the frontal lobes or their prefrontal cortex in a way that they are able to access when they feel more psychologically safe so i absolutely resonate with what you're saying and that fear component is really huge when we think about Mm -hmm. psychological safety it just doesn't work
0: yeah yeah
1: it just puts you into a zone where you
0: well for sure you cannot perform as um as much as you could but also Mm -hmm. uh, the the level of well-being and happiness um
1: is just quite low, right? Absolutely. Just staying in that heightened state of stress over longer periods of time. We know that there are, you know, there are impacts on our physiology of staying in that state of stress. But, you know, outside of that, just even the the limited access to people's thoughts and ideas prevents the, the team or the company from moving forward. So leaders are really sort of, yeah, getting in their own way by creating cultures of fear like that.
0: And I'm curious, and maybe maybe there's a way for you to share an example in a completely anonymous way. How does it look like when you may work with a leader that had challenges in fostering um, an environment which includes psychological safety? Um, how does the, the shift kind of happen? What is helpful
1: for them? Wonderful question. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about one client who I worked with somewhat recently uh, who who has not promoted a psychologically safe environment in her team. And so I've been doing interviews with uh, some of her team members to really sort of understand what do they experience in relation to their manager. And everything that I'm hearing from the employees is, you know, I don't feel safe coming to her. I don't feel like she's available. It's hard to reach her. And then when we do have a conversation, she shoots my ideas down. She, you know, she makes all of the decisions herself. She doesn't ask for input. So these are all sort of the the characteristics that we see of a leader who can be promoting a psychologically unsafe work environment when people don't feel that kind of safety, to speak up and share their ideas without fear that they'll be punished or there will be, you know, uh, retribution for speaking up. I mean, that's a clear indicator that it's it's a psychologically unsafe work environment that she's created. So the work is really to speak with her directly and work to help her understand, one, the impact that she's having on others, and two, start to unpack, you know, where is this coming from? For, I do a lot of, you know, uh, insight development in the coaching work that I do. Not all coaches work that way, but I like to really sort of help leaders understand why they might be behaving in the way that they, that they are. That might have come from, you know, past childhood experiences. That might come from, you know, a family environment that's very high pressure and has put a lot of uh, expectations around high levels of performance. You know, there can be a lot of reasons that leaders show up in this way but often what we find when we start to kind of unpack the roots of the behavior is that there's usually some very vulnerable spot that the leader experiences that they have tried to cover up for in these you know in these more aggressive or unsafe ways it's usually some some you know some insecurity or some pain point that they've experienced in relationship to somebody else and then the way that they've tried to counteract that is to try to get control of their team, right? And just try to try to hold a space where they they think they're getting high performance, but they've forgotten that the vulnerability is really what helps people feel safer. And so the more that they lose that vulnerability themselves, the less safe the environment tends to become. That's generally what I see. And sometimes folks just can't quite get there. Sometimes folks don't They're not able to look at the impact that they're having and understand sort of where it's coming from, why they're doing it and change it unless there's, you know, maybe their boss has, you know, set performance expectations for them and they put them on a performance improvement plan or something like that. But usually you can do a lot of work just one-on-one with that person, just sort of opening up the conversation and understanding what's going on and why.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm... I'm also curious to hear from you in terms of the, the 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 benefits that you can you can you can get you can gain from having psychological safety in your workplace. Um of course, you know in my mind belonging is certainly having a sense of belonging is mm-hmm. just is just totally possible. Um yet maybe Psychological safety is like the foundational stone for belonging to happen and then to get to a sense of belonging, you need a few more things. But what does it what does psychological safety facilitate in your experience?
1: Ah, oh, what an excellent question. Yeah, I, to your point about belonging, what I would say is that environments that are characterized by inclusion and belonging, are psychologically safe environments. I think it is very difficult to get to inclusion and true belonging in an organization if psychological safety is not already present, to your point. So sure, inclusion, belonging could be happy byproducts of a psychologically safe work environment. To your point, I don't think it's sufficient and it's not sufficient for a full diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging strategy, but it's certainly helpful towards getting you a little bit closer to those goals. So absolutely, inclusion and belonging. And then innovation is a huge one that we see. And that's a lot of what uh, Amy Edmondson's research has focused on, that in high-performing teams that are characterized, characterized by psychological safety, you tend to just get better ideas, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that makes sense because if you have people who aren't afraid to speak up, and maybe test out an idea that they're not totally sure about, or they're maybe taking a guess, or they feel a little nervous to share it you just have more ideas floating around in the environment right so you've got more diversity of perspectives that are sort of all working together to try to you know move the team forward in whatever direction they end up going right but the more ideas you have just available in the environment the easier it is to get to an innovative solution mm-hmm. so innovation is a huge one that we see and then what i would also say is just you know more camaraderie, right? You tend to see healthier relationships in environments that have a healthy amount of disagreement. And we see this in the the diversity research all the time, that teams that are more representative have more innovative and oftentimes higher quality solutions because people have to figure out how to engage in healthy conflict, healthy disagreement with one another. But if I don't feel safe speaking my mind, it's much harder to to engage in that kind of healthy disagreement in a way that helps move the team forward.
0: Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And if that's okay, I would like to um, hear a little bit
1: about what belonging means to you personally. Yeah, I would say, I don't think I I realized, I mean, until I was sitting down to think about this conversation that we were going to have today, I was really sort of chewing on the origins of, you know, feelings of belonging, environments where I have felt like I belong, environments where I haven't felt like I belonged. And I have, uh, what I was realizing was that when I was in the fifth grade, I think I had my one a, a very early experience with not feeling like I belonged and it made a huge impact to me and I think is that is probably part of the reason that I became a psychologist to some degree but wow I, I yeah I, I uh, was very ill as a kid I had pretty serious asthma and so during the fifth grade in particular I had a, a very bad bout of it and I was in and out of the hospital I think it was during the fifth and sixth grade. But what that meant was that I was not in school a lot of the time, but when, you know, when I felt good enough to go into school, I would go back and I, every time I would go back, I would have difficulty kind of getting back into the rhythm of a group of friends that I had. And, you know, kids would question where I had been, why had I missed so much school And it was a really challenging time just, you know, as a 10 year old trying to figure out sort of who am I in relationship to my peers Mm -hmm. to feel like, oh, there's this, there's this part of me that is really not acceptable that I can't really bring, bring into these conversations, you know, having asthma, it makes me weak or it makes me sick, or it means that I can't hang out with my friends. And it, so I, it was really a, a, foundational experience for me in what rejection feels like and you know from there I think what I started to play with as a you know 10 11 12 year old was what does it take for me to fit in who do I need to be to be acceptable to this group of friends that I have. Now, of course, in retrospect, that was exactly the wrong question to be asking myself, right? It should be what environments do I feel safe enough to be fully myself in and then go find those environments, right? But as a 10-year-old, the feeling of rejection was so powerful that what it led me to do was to try to shape some of who I was so that I could fit in. Mm. And uh, a little, I guess a little earlier, I had discovered uh, the theater community and my parents had, you know, put me into theater summer camps. And that was really the first place that I felt like I could just show up and be me. And it didn't really matter that there were all of these other sort of quirky or weird parts of me or that I had asthma. It was just okay to show up and be myself. And in fact, it was important to show up. And be myself because that's really you know what helps make a great theatrical performance is when people come together as who they are and they bring all of their ideas into that space and you know create something new from it so sort of those those two experiences in tandem both being rejected by my peers at school but then welcomed for who i was in the theater community just made a really significant impact on who 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 i am and how i show up today Thank you so much for sharing those, um,
0: those stories. Um, I want to acknowledge the vulnerability that it takes. Um, in context like this, when we are, um, when we are a child, um, going back to what we were saying at the beginning of the conversation, will influence so much of our kind of future experiences, right? It really uh, impacts the baseline, if not, it sets the baseline, you also mentioned something earlier around how you could look, you know, around in a playground and see how hmm. you know, kids would interact. Could you already see, like, if you were to um, go to a playground, like, could you already observe who is trying to fit in and
1: who's and who's hmm. themselves? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I don't know if I was aware at the time of who was trying to fit in and who was able to be themselves. I, part of that may have been that I ended up in friend groups that were a little misfit like, and so it tended to be, it tended to be the kids who weren't already just accepted as, you know, part of the popular crowd or, you know, whatever it might have been, Um, but in retrospect it's interesting that's it's an interesting question because it's making me wonder how many of the kids who i perceived as just sort of being able to show up as themselves and be accepted for it were doing some kind of social performance or trying to fit in themselves lovely question i hadn't thought about it from that perspective and full disclosure i have a toddler And um, when you
0: mentioned the playground example and we talked about, you know, um, (laughs) children, I kind of went there and I was like, because I'm already noticing different ways Mm. of being, of behaving. And yeah, this question kind of opened up for me.
1: (laughs) Interesting, interesting. You created a psychologically safe environment here for the conversation. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) And um, what elements
0: would you say that, you personally need right now to feel psychologically safe in an environment, um, and then maybe further down the line to belong.
1: Beautiful question. i what I would say is that there are there are common behaviors that characterize psychologically safe environments or psychologically safe relationships. And it generally, they're generally behaviors that promote curiosity, that promote deep listening, that promote a sense that it's okay to make mistakes. What really characterizes psychologically safe environments is that willingness to engage with the person in front of you as they are, and to really make space for what they have to say. So what I would say is that there are there are a lot of behaviors that anybody can engage in that help you get closer to a psychologically safe environment. You know, you're doing such a beautiful job here in this conversation, but, you know, part of it is it can be asking really good and deep and curious questions that promote, you know, somebody kind of slowing down and pausing and really thinking about what they they think about the question or, you know really demonstrating excellent listening behaviors, right? Like reflecting back what you hear somebody saying, giving them feedback about what you're, what you're hearing, listening for the emotion that's underneath what somebody is saying. Being a really good listener demonstrates respect to people and demonstrates that you care enough about what they have to say to bring themselves out you're demonstrating that the you're looking for the full self of that other person who you're talking to by really deeply listening and asking really curious questions. So I would say those are two huge, huge behaviors that anybody can do in any relationship to help make an environment feel more psychologically safe. Now, what you do with that information that you hear from that other person, that's also equally important, right? Because psychological safety at its core is permission that to speak up without fear that I'm going to be interpersonally hurt by that person. right? So how do I hold the information that they're sharing with me lightly and kindly so that they don't feel like they are being punished by my response? That's the the next big question, right? How do you help hold that space for somebody where you're not punishing them? And much of that comes back to just listening And not trying to problem solve or fix or place value judgments on right and then that i think ties back into your question about how you create cultures of belonging in spaces that are psychologically safe where we have that kind of free flow of ideas and i feel like i can share who i am and in fact it's important that i share who i am then there's more space for me to really feel accepted for who I am and to feel like I belong as part of the group, regardless of my background, what I look like, what I sound like, you know, any, any identity factors.
0: One thing that's coming up now, um, as I hear you describe all this and share the insights in such a beautiful way, um, how does trust come into play? And when trust is kind of lost because, We, yeah, we just don't trust our leader anymore because um, they didn't show any signs of psychological safety for the year that we've been working for them. Could we regain,
1: Could could the leader, sorry, regain our trust in some way? I think the short answer is yes. I think it is always possible to restore trust, but it does have to be authentic, right? And the person has to understand what damaged trust in the first place. So I think... Part of what you're you're talking about is how how self-aware is the leader to even know that a rupture occurred in the first place. And part of of what I see leaders struggling with often is they don't know they have an environment of low psychological safety because people aren't speaking up. All they hear is silence in meetings. And so oftentimes the tendency is to say, well, you know, nobody's speaking up, so assume everything is good to go, right? But oftentimes what's kind of lurking in the shadows is some kind of rupture from the folks that have not had you know have been hurt in some way by this leader so the first step is to really understand what's going on with your team right and if i'm a leader who has there's been some kind of a trust breach but i don't know if i'm hearing more silence than i usually hear I think that's a good indicator that it's a time to start asking more curious mm-hmm. questions and really go in and deeply listening to folks on the team to see if there's something that you're not hearing that is maybe important. Yeah, And, you know, I'd say that this is also sort of a, a mutual road or a bi-directional road that oftentimes if we've lost trust in somebody, there's usually a reason, right? We've perceived hurt there. We have actually been hurt. We've been harmed. However, if we don't kind of make a decision to extend trust back towards a person, it's very difficult to rebu- rebuild trust that's been broken. So I, I, what I would say is that it's sort of twofold. It's on the leader to go in and learn what might have happened to really listen and hear and then make the appropriate changes to rebuild trust. But then it's also on the part of the person who has you know, been maybe hurt in some way, To try again if they feel like it's safe enough to try to extend trust. Now, of course, you know, ultimately psychological safety is about trying to keep ourselves safe, or lack of psychological safety is about trying to keep ourselves safe. So, if it truly does not feel safe to extend trust to a leader, then oftentimes those relationships do tend to sort of deteriorate over time. If you're not willing to give, you know, a second or possibly a third chance, but, you know, once people get beyond three trust ruptures they're usually like nope i'm out i'm not going to try this anymore that's too much Yeah, yeah yeah
0: thank you so much for sharing um those insights it's been super helpful for me to really deep dive on psychological safety because it's been something it's been a big theme in relation to belonging and mm. it kept just coming back um, throughout so many episodes of the podcast. And it has also generated a lot of amazing, Offline conversations with the people that are listening. So I'm really glad that you are willing to Wonderful. do this deep dive together.
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Fiorenza. This has just been such a such a lovely conversation, and your your questions are so curious and inviting. It really does. You've you've created a really lovely space here. So thank you.
0: You can follow the podcast on LinkedIn at the Belonging Project podcast. You can also hit subscribe and stay up to date with our episodes. And do feel free to get in touch with me on coaching at Thank you again and see you next time.